Well, we're going to be in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, like I mentioned. And uh, today I want to talk about imagery. Imagery. As, as people have already pointed out, my, um, my wonderful drawing to my left here, to your right. Uh, my wife thought it looked like a chicken foot at the bottom. Um, somebody else said uh, Mount Vesuvius, a volcano perhaps erupting. I guess I'm not as good of an artist as I thought. Maybe I should have had one of my daughters draw it. They probably would have done better. But imagery is an amazing tool. And you don't have to draw things for it to be imagery, right? Uh, I can relate. It can relate thoughts and feelings without words. Or words can paint pictures that the wise can understand, but the foolish cannot. It can veil warnings in poetic threats. Imagery can make something immaterial, like hope or joy, a bit more solid and easier to understand. Besides, you know, speaking plainly and relaying a direct message can get a bit boring. It's like somebody reading out of the dictionary and that's all they do. Throughout the book of Isaiah, imagery is used to do all of this and more. One specific type of imagery just keeps coming up. It's this imagery related to the growth, of, the growth or related, something related to plants. And so, like I said, I have in your bulletin these, this thing that's the title of my message here today, but Botany Prophecies, Plant-Related Imagery in Isaiah. And uh, go down, going down the list, we've got, and I have the references off to the side for you, but a stump, uh, the shoot growing up out of the stump, tender green shoots. As you can see, we brought over uh, grass in a... Who, who grows just grass in a, uh, a pot, right? Well, we do because we cut it off and we feed it to our guinea pigs. But that's, that's grass right there. Um, as if you've never seen grass before, right? What else do we got? We got the root of Jesse. We got gloating trees. Can you believe that? Trees that gloat. Uh, the root of Ahaz. Fields of Heshbon shoots that wither. Oaks of righteousness. And then there's these plants that reject God and they get burned in flame. What about the branch of God? God's planting for his glory. There's a man of sorrows that grew up before the Lord like a plant who had no form or majesty. And then it also said in in chapter 40 that people are like grass, they wither, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. These are just a few of them. You've got them all there. You've got the references. They're all in Isaiah. Um, Take a look at it for yourself. They refer to different things. Um, they relate different types of messages, but there's still like this, this idea of, of plant life and growth that's connecting them. So like I said, I'm calling this the botany prophecies. They're just different topics, but there's one that comes up that's, that's most identifiable in chapter 11. And so our, our main time will be spent in 11 and some chapters and books that are related to chapter 11. But the very first verse of chapter 11 in Isaiah says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. And as I read these words, I start to see the actual picture of the stump. Now, over here, I have my beautiful volcano chicken foot. I think it's a tree. That's what I tried to make. And I've I've got the green part up here, and I decided since I didn't have brown marker on hand, redwood, right? Because I had a red marker. (laughs) Use your imagination. Well, what we got here is a tree, but how do you get a stump? Well, you cut it off. Ooh, I prepared. (laughs) Yes, 
we have a beautiful stump or part of a chicken foot, depending on who you are. And, uh, and, and as I read these words, I started to actually see this thing, this stump. Um, and, and you probably have seen a stump or two in your life. You've probably, uh, my parents had this ginormous, as a kid, everything's bigger than you, but a big old, I thought it was a pine tree in our front yard. And one day, it just came crashing down, thankfully not on top of our house, but in our side yard. And for a while, we just had a stump, and then we, we got rid of that. We pulled that out. But it was just this huge tree as I was a kid, and then one day it was gone. But this stump was there. And as, you, and, and as I was thinking about this particular passage, I was thinking as we were going down walks down Rusk Street, on the other side of Decker, they're doing some road work, much like they did over here uh, on Rusk over here. And, you know, what that entails, they're blocking off portions of the uh, sidewalk, they're digging it up, they're getting ready to tear up the ground, put new sewer, and put some new utilities and stuff in there. But unfortunately, that also means that there are trees that they needed to cut down. For whatever reason, I haven't taken a survey to ask why they cut them down, but there's lots and lots of stumps down the street. And they're not, they're not pretty. Okay, I, I honestly observe this. They're not very pretty stumps because the way that they cut the trees off, it's not low down the bottom. That's, I don't know much about trees and arboring, that's a word. Um, but I would have just cut it as low as possible, clean so it's nice and flat. I don't know why, but that's what I would do. But what we have over there are big, ugly, jagged stumps. And I'm not saying that those contractors are doing a bad job because I don't know what they've been asked to do. Exactly. And I'm sure all this is a part of a plan and eventually they'll take those stumps out and they'll replant new trees like we have along our road down here for any trees that needed to be removed. But for now, the people who live in those houses, those trees on their boulevard are no longer trees. They're big, ugly, jagged looking stumps. Not very pretty. Where once living historical landmarks grew in their front yard. Now, can you imagine the workers' surprise? Just, just imagine this. If, if they come back tomorrow, Monday, if they come back tomorrow to work out on the road and they see these stumps, but what they actually see is a tree has regrew where the stump was. They're like, didn't we cut that one down? Oh yeah, we cut it down. Well, let's do it again. I mean, that would just, they would probably lose their minds. Did we actually cut that one down? So I know it seems very unlikely, but here in Isaiah 11.1, 1, we've got a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. Well, maybe this imagery isn't so strange. I mean, when I picture it, I picture it like this. You've got the stump, and then much like the grass, you've got like this little something coming up out of it, this little shoot of growth and life coming up. It's small to begin with, and then it starts to take on a bigger form. Maybe it's not that unusual in nature than I'm making it out to be. I mean, have you ever had a, a plant in your yard where you just prune that puppy back? You wanted, you wanted to chop it off. You want to see, sh- short of digging it up, you, you just about killed it. But guess what happens next season or even in a couple weeks? It grows back, right? Uh, I mean, when we lived in Oklahoma, we, uh, we had this little annoying stump 
right, in part of our yard, that it looked like it had been, this had done a lot of times, where if we didn't cut it back, every couple weeks it would grow up and it'd be almost like a small little tree. And so we would, it would give quite a bit of problems to our yard maintenance. And so, and we weren't the first ones at this rental house to do this. There was evidence of the thing being cut off multiple times. And every time it was cut off, cut back, a new shoot grew up out of it and it became even more determined to live. I want to live. So Isaiah paints this kind of picture of new life coming up out of something that is essentially dead, a stump. A stump with no future except for maybe firewood, right? The key prophecy, this key prophecy points to the Messiah, right? I'm just going to jump over here and, and say this is what we're pointing at. It points to the Messiah. It seems pretty obvious. It identifies his lineage and shows us how he will come. New life springing forth from something that was certainly past its expiration date. The Messiah brings hope and a future where there seems to be none. And it's not just this little shoot, right? It's not just this little shoot. It doesn't stay as a little shoot because it goes on to say that it becomes a branch. That's a little thicker of a branch I'm going to draw there. Okay? Becomes a branch. And it's a fruit-bearing branch nonetheless. And there's, there's not a lot of uh, good specific info on orchards in Judah. If you'll, I, I had trouble finding uh, historical, maybe people just didn't study it a whole lot, or I was just reading the wrong papers, but um, identifying what the culture down back then in this Old Testament time were growing and how they did it and what rows, they weren't really concerned with it. But it seemed like through scripture, you can see clearly there's certain types of uh, trees and fruit-bearing plants that um, are called out. Of course, vineyards, uh, gr- grape, grape fields, grape vines, um, field, fig trees for sure are in the are in the scriptures. Olive farming; those seem to be some of the main agriculture um, that are mentioned in the Bible. And looking at this verse in just our own context, taking out the biblical historical context, we might just think picture the stump or chicken foot, the stump, and you might think apple tree, right? You might, you might think apple tree, orange tree, pear tree, whatever tree that you're familiar with, uh, you would think of that. And there's nothing wrong with conceptualizing it that way. Just know that the original audience who would read this after Isaiah had wrote it and spoke it, they probably would have pictured it just a little differently because the plant that they would relay it to, the stump would be different the way it would grow. Well, let's move on to verse two, all right? Verse two says, the spirit of the Lord will rest, will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And we stop there at the very beginning of verse three. This is where Isaiah makes it perfectly clear that he's not talking about an actual plant, okay? This is, this is um, poetic language. He's not talking about an actual plant or trees or stumps. Several translations capitalize the word branch in verse one. So capital B, identifying it as a proper noun. 
Here in verse two, the beginning and the beginning of verse three, Isaiah calls the branch him. The spirit of the Lord will, the spirit of the Lord will rest on this branch and the branch will have the following attributes. And it comes out in these verses. What are those attributes? And you have them there in your, your outline today. Wisdom. Solomon was wise because he asked for wisdom. Did you know that? he's a great example of that? And we're not necessarily talking about his king, his kingship here, but the truth is he was wise because he asked for wisdom. I mean, when God said, ask whatever you want, and Solomon had enough, <laughs> ironically, it's kind of cyclical, wisdom to ask for wisdom, the ability to lead his people according to God's way. He asked for wisdom because he had wisdom to know that's what he needed. God gave him all that wisdom and more. What about understanding? Well, it's in connection to wisdom. This is the ability to take in information and comprehend it. Take in information and comprehend it. Um, Perhaps it could be put this way. Understanding is knowing what the right thing is to do. Wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time. But counsel, 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 not like the thing that you set stuff on, but somebody who will counsel you to help guide and advise. This is not a new concept. Kings in other areas, not just uh, Judah and Israel, had advisors. We see it all throughout scripture and history. Um, The kings didn't just rule with no one's input or guidance or direction, especially as we'll see here in a little bit. A lot of them were very young when they got the, the throne, and, uh, and they needed some advice from other people, people who had gone before them. And so they would have trusted advisors and counselor, counselors to help them make the best decisions for their kingdom. And so, but the thing is, it's about the branch had the spirit of counsel. He has the best advice and directions for being the Messiah because the spirit of the Lord rests on him. Counsel helps kings know if they should go to war or be more diplomatic. The spirit helps guide the branch's decision-making process. What about, what about might? Or my, my translation here said power, but might or power. What about that? Well, when dis- diplomacy doesn't work out, when it's not possible, might and force are all that's left. The sheer power of the spirit to overthrow nations and tear down walls. Power and might. The knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is to know the Lord, to be in complete respect of him and his awesome power. That seems to be a truly admirable quality, right? And to delight in the fear of the Lord, not just to consider his power, to be thinking about it and be reverent to it, but this branch, the Messiah, would actively enjoy and delight. Woohoo! You know? Delight in it. It's exciting. And so that's really how we usually look at the scripture. We're like, well, this is just foretelling the Messiah, and that's all we need to talk about um, because we get all those clues in the New Testament. It points to it through the writings, and there's nothing wrong with that. But around the time that I started thinking about doing this series in Isaiah, I started looking for my next daily Bible study through the YouVersion app. I was challenged back during Lent to, by one of my close friends to join in a, a group Bible study through the Bible app. And it's, it's been wonderful to be able to continue on and get 
new Bible studies and, and invite other people to participate and discuss within the app itself. Um, but I was looking for a new one and I decided to find one on Isaiah. And it's written by a pastor from uh, a Presbyterian minister from South Africa. There was devotionals as well as the readings that go along with it and then an opportunity for you to discuss. And uh, his name is uh, Theo, I'm, I'm gonna, I practiced this a lot, Groneveld, Theo Groneveld. And, uh, and so some of his, so I'll quote some of his dis, uh, devotionals, uh, writings here. But the prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament, again, we usually just jump to the New Testament and say, this points to Jesus 100%. That's all it is. And that is true. And Groneveld would say that they are finally fulfilled. The prophecies are finally fulfilled in Jesus. But in his writings, he introduced to me something that he called initial fulfillment. That is to say that there was someone in the Old Testament who checked these boxes. The, pre- the branch that would bear fruit, have the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord, delights in the fear of the Lord. For Pastor Groneveld, this prophecy is initially fulfilled through a king during the time of Isaiah. Doesn't mean he's the Messiah, but more so like he's... he's like that foretaste we're talking about, like, okay, this is this really good example, but the Messiah is going to actually fulfill it. That's kind of the way that I'm thinking about these two ideas, the initial fulfillment of the prophecy for the right then and there, but it still points to the complete and final fulfillment of the prophecy. The very degrees in which you or I might consider um, being a good king, there were, the, there were some kings during Isaiah's time. And they varied in good or bad. <laughs> some were okay, some were good, and some were just plain rotten. These kings were like shoots coming up from the ground or from a stump. Some grew strong but withered under pressure. But one of them grew quickly, strengthened by the Spirit. It was a branch that bears fruit. Again, I'm not going to pretend like this uh, points to G- that that we don't understand that this points to Jesus finally fulfilling this, but we've got to look at these line of the kings to see who it is that initially fulfilled the prophecy. So let's start at the beginning of uh, the kings during Isaiah's time, Uzziah. You can find his story, we won't read all of it, but you can find his story in Second uh, Chronicles 26. If you want to just jot that down, you can look it up later. He became king at the ripe old age Get this, at the ripe old age of 16. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine a king at 16? What that might have done to his head, what other people might have been thinking about him, but a king at 16. The people had decided that he would make a better, a 16-year-old would make a better king than his father. Now, granted, his, king, his father was terrible and had worshipped other gods, so that's probably a good choice. But... Groneveld said Uzziah was a good king, but he became ambitious and wanted to be priest as well as king. So he kind of overstepped his bounds, the place that God had put him in. And so Groneveld continues, he was struck with leprosy and completed his reign from isolation. He was a promising shoot, sprouting at the time of great need of revival. But it's as if this little branch had a heavy rock laid right on top of it. And that rock was never to be removed. So what about the next generation? 
Uzziah's son Jotham became king in Judah when he was 25. So a little bit more seasoned, right? And try as he might, relying on the teaching of the leadership of his father Uzziah, Jotham still came up short. In 2 Kings, and it bounces around this history, by the way. In 2 Kings 15, 34 through 35b, it says this, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Woo! Finally, somebody's getting it right. It's exciting. But let's move on to verse uh, 35. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. This is a problem. This is associated with idol worship, okay? And we'll see this theme come up again and again until it is not, until it's actually dealt with. There is only one specific thing that Jotham is credited for, and it's building the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now, the only other failure that insinuated in this line of kings on Jotham's behalf is that he lacked guiding his son as he raised him to do good instead of evil. Um, One would hope if he had, he wouldn't have turned out so terribly. But Jotham's son Ahaz was terribly evil. If Jotham was a shoot that grew, grew better but didn't quite grow into the branch that he could have been, Ahaz was a thorny weed or a choking vine. There was no fruit, just destruction of any good that came before him. And you could read all about it. I'm sure you'd love to hear all about Ahaz's wickedness in 2 Kings 16, but I'm gonna give you some of the highlights. I'll save you time, but you can write that down and look at it this afternoon. Ahaz comes into power when he's 20 years old. Instead of following the leaders of Judah, the scripture says that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And we see how well that did for the kings of Israel, right? (laughs) Their ways were not great and they went in captivity long before Judah fell. He even went so far as to burn his own son as an offering. Can you imagine that? Regardless of what age your child is in your mind at this point, I'm picturing a baby, but whatever. Offering and burning them as a sacrifice to your little G God. How terrible. Big G God, real God, never asked that of of Ahaz. But it was actually a practice from the people of the land that God had driven those people out before the Israelites got on the scene. Ahaz also formed an alliance with the Assyrians. He gifted them some gold and silver from the royal treasury. Well, not a moment too soon, Ahaz died. And his son Hezekiah sprouted to leadership. You'll find his story detailed in 2 Kings 18 through 20. Now, Hezekiah didn't have the best role model, of course, but this was a good example of free will, isn't it? I mean, you can have the, the worst role models or pa- uh, people in your life, parents, but you can still choose the good. You can You have free will to do good or to do evil. You don't have to be a carbon copy of your predecessors, but if they model the right things for you, perhaps you should pursue those things, right? Well, Hezekiah looked back and did rather not what Ahaz did, but what Grandpa Jotham, Grandpa Jotham failed to do. 
He went up to those high places and he tore them down, those places of sacrifices to the gods, the little G gods. 2 Kings 18, three through four. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David, no, he didn't say Ahaz, father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. All these things were part of pagan worship. This next piece is kind of interesting though. It continues on. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Nehushtan. Now, this is interesting. I don't know if, if you've ever heard this piece. This is kind of cool. Um, if you think about it, God, this was a God-appointed religious relic, this bronze snake on a pole. It was a God-appointed religious relic. If you remember back to the time in the Exodus, Moses was told to build this by God to relieve the people of their pain from their snake bites to re- when they looked upon the snake, when, they, when it was lifted up and they looked upon it, it would relieve them of their pain. But sometimes religious icons and things like that can become areas of worship rather than things that help us worship the one true God. Kind of like if you ever think about it, a lucky rabbit's foot. Or if you have something that you always have to have, your lucky coin or whatever it is, and why? There's some sort of religious, spiritual attachment to this thing that you're actually worshiping. And so he smashed this religious relic because people were worshiping it rather than God. The people and the prophecy awaited not just a ruler that would make things right, but a leader who would lead the people of Judah by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hezekiah started right off making life better by tearing down the things that distracted the people from truly giving their full allegiance to God. In 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah reestablishes Passover, not just for the southern kingdom of Judah, which is his area of reign, right? Interestingly enough, he sent word to the scattered in the northern kingdom of Israel, calling them to return to the Lord and not be like the previous. Don't be like your predecessors. Don't be like your parents or grandparents. Don't be like that previous generation. Those who gathered at this celebration left with a sense of purpose. They began roaming around, as they're going home, roaming around the land, tearing down Asherah poles and other sacred stones that had drawn their worship away from God. It's like a revival. Every time uh, kids would come back in my youth group, from teen camp or uh, Nazarene Youth Congress uh, conference, whatever, they would, they would have this fresh infilling of the spirit. They'd be like, oh, I need to change my life. I need to do this. There was kids who were like taking their CDs. Yes, people played CDs back then or tapes, cassette tapes of secular music. And they thought, felt compelled to just get rid of it, whether they threw it in the trash or they burned it, believe it or not. They got rid of it and they tore it down. Whatever it was that they felt at that time, they were so zealous, they were so empowered with a spirit to make a big change in their life. They did these things. And I, I just picture these folks leaving this celebration of Passover and they roam around as they're heading home and they're tearing down these things that would distract them from truly worshiping God. So this little shoot, and I, and I, would, say, I would say that that's kind of like a fruit. And I don't know if you, I did a little research also. 
fig trees. I don't know if you ever have, raise your hand if you've ever had a fig that wasn't in a Newton. <laughs> okay, figs. We sell them at the store and I've seen them before and I've had at least one of them before. It's, they're, they're nice and sweet. They're tasty. Um, but like figs, they have like this kind of square, a little pouch looking uh, shape. It's an interesting fruit. But uh, yeah, I, I see that, especially that particular instance, that is fruit coming off of the branch. Uh, he's producing it in someone else to give them action. There's this, this passing down of the activity that he himself has started. This little shoot started to become a bigger branch growing toward the light. He soaked in the light of the Lord. He, he led with wisdom, understanding, and fear of the Lord. The might part of Hezekiah might have been shown when the Assyrians came harassing Judah. Yeah, imagine that. The enemies of Judah are going to come and talk smack, as the kids would say, in 1990 anyway, to, to intimidate them into submission, to scare them with words instead of with just overpowering force. It's not clear if Hezekiah made a misstep in his response to this, but the Assyrians had attacked and captured all of the fortified cities in Judah. And that's a big problem. If you don't have your fortified cities, you don't have a whole lot of land. Uh, and so instead of uh, attacking them, he actually, uh, in court, would be, we'd say settled. He gave them money. He gave them gold and silver uh, to go away. And it seems as if they've gone a little ways away. Well, I saw that and I kind of pictured, this is kind of like a shark smelling blood in the water. It kind of showed the weakness here. And so they decided to act on that. And so an Assyrian commander and master intimidator, he came and had this to say to Judah. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you. He said a lot of other things, but this one's key. Persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. The com- this commander guy, this, this mouthpiece for the Assyrian army, was, was intimidated the people. Hey, you better come on our side, forget your king, because uh, in three years we're going to take over this place, and don't you want to be on the good side? Don't you want to be on our side? Yes, you do. We'll make this life miserable if you don't. And while Hezekiah could have commanded his troops to just chase down this commander, attack him, and kill him, Hezekiah does something that reflects the qualities of a branch that bears fruit. He looked to God. He looked to God with a repentant and desperate heart. Second Kings 19 tells us that Hezekiah tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. We talked about this back during Lent. Those are, those are activities of people who are mourning and repentant um, of whatever's going on in their life. They are sad and sorrowful. And he went into the house of the Lord. He was broken and humble. And then he sent his leaders to meet with the man of God, Isaiah. And they report all this stuff to Isaiah. And Isaiah assures them that they need not be afraid of this Assyrian commander. The Lord will soon deal with him and he won't be back to bother the people of Judah. And that's not all. The king of Assyria at this point is a guy named Sennacherib. You pronounce it however you want. That's how I did. And he was still threatening to take the land of Judah for his own. Hezekiah goes to the only true source of power, God. He goes to prayer. He says in 2 Kings 19, 15 through 19, 
Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their land to the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. These are the ones they've taken over, by the way, context here. They took over lands, threw those wooden and stone gods in the fire. He says, For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord, our God. So he sought the Lord, and the branch grew stronger and bigger. And when you put your trust fully in someone that you can't see, you're leaning ever closer towards the edge that divides you, divides safety from risk. Picture that. And you're truly going out on a limb. But Hezekiah believed the Lord. He received confirmation from Isaiah of what the Lord would do about this problem. This is Isaiah speaking. He says, therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this, this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of, my, of David, my servant. Continues on. Here's how God pictures it, how, how God took care of this problem. In uh, 2 Kings 19, 35 through 36, it says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and 85,000, 185, 000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. At every turn, Hezekiah seemed to be wise to seek the counsel of the Lord. Every opportunity before him, every tough situation, he calls on the Lord. One day, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and delivers him a message. It wasn't a message Hezekiah was really wanting to hear. You see, Hezekiah was sick. And all we know about his sickness was this, that he had a a big painful boil. It's the only visual that we're given. And the message from God was short and simple. Get your house in order, you will soon die. But instead of accepting his fate, this is kind of interesting, he prays and weeps before God. 2 Kings 20, verse 3 starts out, Remember, Lord, how I walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. Look at me. I've done what you've asked. Look on me. The Lord decides to heal him, after all, and gives him 15 more years of life. I mean, woo, that's exciting. 
Kind of scary, because then you know you're going to die in 15 years, but kind of scary and kind of cool. And you might say Hezekiah is checking all the right boxes. He's wise. He fears the Lord. He leads his people to do the same. And most of all, he goes to the Lord in prayer. He's the ruler that we deserve and need. He's the fruit-bearing branch. Isaiah, thanks for outlining the perfect leader for us. Hezekiah's got this. Unfortunately, Hezekiah fell into the same trap that so many kings fall into. That's the trap of pride. He had some foreigners visiting. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever tried to make a good impression on somebody that's, that's come a long way, whether it's family or whatever, you might clean up your house or you might do this or that or the other thing. And, oh, I'm gonna show you all my new things and all of this and that. So I'm picturing this and he's, he's got these foreign dignitaries. He's never, he's never heard of their country before and they're showing, he's showing them all around. He even tells Isaiah later on, he said, they saw everything in my palace There's nothing among my treasures I did not show them. So he's just showing all the stuff, all the things. And I could just picture, I don't know if you can picture this, I'm just picturing Isaiah doing this. An epic Old Testament facepalm. Just, oh. And it probably made that noise. Facepalm when he heard this. Isaiah then told Hezekiah that his descendants would be carried off by these visitors away to the faraway land of Babylon. See, he had shown all of his treasures to the Babylonians, his guests. <laughs> and, and instead of being concerned about this, instead of saying, oh, no, 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 let's, let's fix this, Hezekiah just goes, well, at least there's going to be peace and security in my time, huh? Interesting. Basically, he says, I'm fine with all that stuff that happens as long as it happens after I'm dead. And here's the divide, friends. Here's the divide where the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse, Hezekiah, only initially points to the kind of Savior that would one day rescue God's people. Hezekiah did good while he lived, guided his people to worship the one true God. But when he died, he had no more influence or on current events than anyone else who had ever died before him. But here, my friends, is where the stump of Jesse gives us the true branch, the capital B branch, the branch. In John 15, Jesus mixes the metaphor for us. And like I said, agriculture is different throughout the generations, what kind of plants we might've been talking about. But he's talking in John 15, Connecting the dots for his great growing audience here when he says this, 15.1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Pause for a moment here. So just like we have this branch coming up from the stump of Jesse, we have Jesus as the starting point. The branches in Jesus' metaphor for are his followers. 
those who take on the name Christian. You might have met a few of those people. Healthy branches will bear fruit. You'll be able to see it. It'll be produced. It's like the fig on the fig tree. You'll be able to see them bear fruit. So they get pruned back so that they get stronger as they regrow. Those who bear nothing are cut off from the vine. Jesus makes it very clear the nature of his relationship to his followers. As we continue on in verse five, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory. This is to my Father's glory that you may that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Friends, you and I are not the Messiah. Okay? And Hezekiah wasn't the Messiah. We look to the Messiah's example, to Jesus' example, to learn what we would do. And then we do it. But if we're truly wanting to be like him, truly producing fruit, we can't just look at his example. We've got to remain, or a different translation would say, abide in him. I like that word a little bit better, abide in him. How can we abide in Christ? Well, let's take a lesson from Jesus' metaphor. The branches are abiding in the vine. They're connected to the vine. And then they are taking on on nourishment to produce fruit. That it's, it's just simple. You cut, if you cut a bunch of grapes off of the vine, they cannot get any more nourishment from it, from any of the bread. They're done growing at that point. And by the way, have you ever thought about this? The, the little parts that hold the grapes together in your bunches of grapes are the saddest part of the bunch of grapes. Nobody wants to eat those. I don't. We throw them away. You know, they're, they're on par with the, the grapes that don't look very good. But you could still eat those if you really wanted to and were hungry. We throw away all those little branches. We enjoy the fruit. And you and me and the disciples who heard Jesus say this in John, the Gospel of John, and the countless people over the years who've read the scripture and been inspired, all of us must do these things. We must stay connected to Jesus. You have a little diagram on your uh, botany prophecies at the bottom. It's kind of like a picture of what a grapevine looks like. You probably have seen them before. I didn't for the longest time. But that trunk, that's the vine, right? And you've got these other little branches that come off to the side. And depending on how you farm and garden your stuff is how they'll grow. But that trunk, that vine at the bottom is what we're talking about Jesus is. Staying connected to Jesus like the branches of a grape plant that stay connected to the main vine. We've got to be nourished by Christ's words. And this last one's a little bit, take take you back a little bit. Whatever is asked for will be received. And I mean, that last one could be a little strange. Whatever you ask, but presumably, if you are abiding in Christ, what he desires becomes more naturally your desires. The things that you ask for for are what he would ask for in you. Back to Isaiah as we wrap things up today. Isaiah eleven ten, he describes a glorious promise of safe haven and refuge that the Messiah will be. 
Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Will you look to him, to Jesus, for safety and motivation, like a banner on a hill? Will you be wise and ask for wisdom? Will you delight in the reverence of the Lord? Look at the track record of any king in the Old Testament. They couldn't do it separated from the vine. They had to abide in the Lord. So we too ought to abide in Christ each moment of each day. So we will grow their fruit and serve his purpose here in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for imagery. I thank you for being able to look outside and see your glorious nature, your loving kindness, being able to experience it through uh, the seasons of the plants and the things like that, Lord. We don't worship them. Make this very clear. But they help us to understand about your nature who you are, and how you want us to live. When a picture is painted for us to see in words or pictures, how it is that you want us to understand how to live, God, I I pray that you would help us to, to truly get it deep into our hearts. Nothing about the life can knock it loose. And we know that if we remain in you, We can grow in you and bear much fruit. And that fruit will nourish the world. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you would help us do these things and more. In your name we pray, amen. You're dismissed. Go in peace.